As I begin this morning, I wanted to share a picture with you of the sanctuary in my last church, um, and specifically the view from the pulpit there. Uh, you might notice, though only seven years older than this building, it's a, it's a far more modern-looking church with its brick and steel I-beam pillars and abstract stained glass. Now, the altar and font are made of granite, and all the wood, including the pulpit, is made of solid oak. I preached from that pulpit for eight and a half years, and so it holds a special place in my heart. Um, and there are special things about it that you wouldn't see unless you were inside the pulpit, like uh, the part of it that holds the note is adjustable, and there's a, a wheel, a crank, like a periscope. You can get down there and change it to, to, to raise and to lower it. Uh, it's got the vintage microphone and sound system, and you stand on a blue shag carpet. It's about that long. But what I liked most about preaching in that pulpit was the thick, round, wraparound oak that surrounded it. It's about five inches thick, solid oak. Uh, I liked it because you always felt safe as a preacher. Even, <laughs> even if you were preaching something that you weren't quite sure about or you knew some people might not like, you always felt protected and safe. And not for nothing, it was near the emergency exit in case you had to make a run for it. I imagine that Jesus wouldn't have mind having a, had a pulpit like that in our gospel reading for this morning as he preaches his first sermon in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. He had traveled around Galilee to Capernaum, but now he had returned home. He was the local boy made good. Uh, we heard the first part of this sermon in last week's Gospels, where he talked about how he was the fulfillment of the Scripture and the Messiah, and so far, so good. It says at the beginning of our Gospel reading today, all spoke well of him. They asked, isn't this Joseph's son? Wow, Jesus has exceeded all of our hopes and expectations. This is amazing. But then Jesus goes on, and the tenor of his sermon and the crowd changes dramatically. He talks about how God's grace came to other people, foreigners and rivals and mortal enemies in ancient times. He tells how during the time of the great prophet Elijah, God came not to the widows of Israel, but to the widow at Zarephath in Sidon, which is modern-day Lebanon. In the time of Elijah's protege, Elisha, he says there were many lepers, but God only saw fit to heal Naaman, a general in the Syrian army, from his leprosy. And the crowd, it says, was filled with rage. You can imagine it. It might be like saying, you know, welcome to church this morning. It's so great to have you here, but did you know that God's mercy is spilling out everywhere else? All to these other people, to other Christians, to other faiths, to people with no faith at all, people that you don't like, your rivals, people that you look down on or you've forgotten or resent or despise. Did you know that God has richly blessed them, that God has saved them and brought them healing and peace? We might respond uh, not so well ourselves. Uh, Pastor Nadia Boltz-Weber has talked about this passage, and she suggests that if Jesus were preaching to us today, it might sound something more like this, that the Spirit of the Lord has anointed Jesus to, to bring gifts of fine wine and rich food to those who only exist on McDonald's and Funyuns, 
because it's the only food in walking distance from their homes, or to bring living water to the people of Flint, Michigan, or Rwanda, or Haiti, or to dismantle our systems of profits at the expense of people, or to endow us with a sense of worth that has nothing to do with bank accounts and status. The starting to get your attention. The crowd responds to Jesus with anger. They were filled with rage, so much so that they got up and drove him out of town and led him to the hill so that they could throw him off. In a matter of minutes, this local boy made good becomes this local boy marked for death. Has, that, has a sermon ever had that kind of effect on you? Has one of my sermons ever had that kind of effect on you? There's a door right there. <laughs> But it's such an interesting dynamic in this story, and I think in preaching in general. You know, we hear in the story in the text about how people in the synagogue felt about Jesus' sermon. But did you ever stop to wonder about how Jesus felt? Not just about their reaction to the sermon, but about how he felt preparing the sermon and preaching a sermon he absolutely knew was going to offend the very people who had helped to raise him. As I've thought on it, it seems to me that there's this dynamic in any preaching of power and vulnerability. To the audience, preachers are perceived as powerful. And yes, they have the floor for no more than 12 minutes, um, and they can say their piece with very little feedback. It's a powerful thing to do. And yet for the preacher, to stand up and preach is a moment of intense vulnerability, to stand in front of hundreds of people, to say what you think, to share your stories and feelings and ideas, to do your best to discern what God wants to be said and speak the gospel in its fullness for us in this time and this place, it's humbling and it's vulnerable and darn near impossible to do. My very favorite book on preaching uh, is an old book by Frederick Beekner, and it's called Telling the Truth. The gospel is tragedy, comedy, and fairy tale. And he opens the book with this kind of moment of vulnerability with Henry Ward Beecher, who was one of the great preachers of the 19th century um, and uh, and for whom a preaching series at Yale uh, is named after. Uh, And Henry Ward Beecher is in his room preparing to get ready for the first inaugural Beecher lectures. He's standing there looking at the mirror shaving and he cuts himself in both what is uh, Beekner describes as a moment of inspiration but also vulnerability. And this is how he describes it. He says, So when he stood there looking into the hotel mirror with soap on his face and a razor in his hand, part of what he saw was his own shame and horror, the sight of his own folly, the judgment one can imagine he found even harder to bear than God's, which was his own judgment on himself. Because whereas God is merciful, we are none of us very good at showing mercy on ourselves. Henry Ward Beecher cut himself with his razor and wrote out the notes for that first Beecher lecture in blood. Because whatever else he was or aspired to be or was famous for being, he was a man of flesh and blood. And so then, what of Jesus? Standing up in his hometown synagogue, looking out at the people he had known his whole life, seen every day of his growing up, the people who helped to raise him and maybe babysat for him and gave him treats when he walked down the street. 
Can we imagine how Jesus felt saying words he knew would break their hearts? At this nodal point in the sermon, I can imagine a pause. Everything was going so well. People were speaking so highly of him. And then he turns and plunges into these stories of old. I imagine, I wonder, did he hesitate? Did he not want to say it? But he does, and he infuriates the crowd so much so that they want to kill their own boy. As a preacher, I think it probably felt pretty awful for Jesus. As a preacher, I have known those moments. Nothing life-threatening so far. But when you are truly convicted enough by the Scripture readings or called by God to preach something that provokes and challenges and confronts, I have to tell you when you're writing it, it really stinks. (laughs) Because all you can think about is how you're going to ruin everybody's Sunday morning. <laughs> I remember at Redeemer um, a while ago now, it, it had become clear to me after a few years there that we just weren't the welcoming congregation that we thought we were and the welcoming congregation that we wanted to be. And so on Reformation Sunday, no less, I got up into the pulpit and I told them in that sort of same turning point moment uh, that we were not as welcoming as we thought we were. And just as I had expected, they were shocked and they were grieved. People went pale. I remember there was a new couple sitting in the pews as I was preaching, and I thought to myself, oh my God, they're never coming back again. But later they said, we came back because when we heard that, we knew we were in the right place. Uh, And it did spur us to be more welcoming. Um, But I've preached some of those sermons there and here, and I know when I'm writing it that some people aren't going to like it, and at the same time know that the gospel demands something to be said. Uh, And many experience that in a moment, not just me, but other preachers as a moment of power. Um, But I experience it as a moment of sheer vulnerability and occasionally terror. And of course, it is both. And that is what the preacher and the listener both need to understand in the other. But there's something deeper here than just the the craft of preaching. I think there's something in this story with Jesus and people's reaction to him that is really key to our faith Um, because I think we often avoid the Jesus that bothers us, the Jesus that frustrates us and angers us. Uh, Remember, the majority of people's reactions to Jesus wasn't so good. His hometown crowd tried to run him off a cliff. Other people mocked him and betrayed and condemned and insulted and slandered and ultimately killed him. Most people just didn't like what Jesus had to say, and the disciples just sort of kind of benignly misunderstood him. It was usually the people that were on the margins uh, that recognized Jesus and welcomed him the most. Um, And I come back again to one of my favorite passages in Nadia's book, Pastrix, and she talks about the way that Jesus just kind of gets in your business and bothers you and kind of relentlessly won't let you go. Uh, and she, she and her friend Sarah Miles kind of have a term for it. She, she calls it Jesus the boyfriend. She writes, uh, Jesus. He always seems to be showing up when I want them to politely just keep out of my business. Once again, my friend Sarah is right. The boyfriend was all up in my business. It's the worst. I think we are missing a huge part of who Jesus is and who we are if we forget or avoid this Jesus. The Jesus that sometimes says things that we don't want to hear. The Jesus that gets 
up in our crawl, the Jesus that keeps tapping us on the shoulder or on the heart and just won't stop, the Jesus that keeps pushing us beyond our comfortable boundaries, our spiritual provincialism. We need that Jesus too. So if you find Jesus bothering you, you're in good company, and it's not a bad thing. And if you find a sermon bothering you on occasion, that might not be such a bad thing either. Finally, in telling the truth, Frederick Buechner writes this about preaching. He says, to preach the gospel is not just to tell the truth, but to tell the truth in love. And to tell the truth in love means to tell it with concern, not just for the truth that is being told, but with concern also for the people that it is being told to. And sometimes that means comfort, and sometimes that means challenge, and always it is imperfect. But the good news is that God works through even this. Amen.